This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. The Capital One Venture X business card earns unlimited double miles on every purchase. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash VentureXBusiness. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Hey, Shortwavers. Today, we are going to talk about new ways to treat severe epilepsy, which means we have summoned NPR's resident brainophile, Mr. John Hamilton. Hello, John. Hey, Aaron. So I understand you were recently in California reporting on some cutting-edge advances in epilepsy care. I was. I was at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, They have a major epilepsy center there, and it does a lot of research on diagnosing and treating the disorder. So while I was there, I was really struck by how fast this field is changing because of advances in technology. I am hoping today's episode involves robots. Of course it does, Aaron. <laughs> we are talking about microelectronics that can help find the source of seizures. We're talking about tiny lasers that can zap the brain tissue causing a problem. Uh-huh. And, of course, robot surgeons to help out in the operating room. Excellent. And what all this technology is doing is making it possible for many more patients to get their seizures under control. It's also allowing people who do get surgery to spend less time in the hospital and to get back to their lives. Tell us a bit about the patients who need this sort of high-tech care. Well, these are people who just a decade or so ago, they would have had to accept that medication alone was not going to stop their Mm -hmm. seizures. So we're talking about roughly a million people here. That's out of the three million people in the U.S. who have epilepsy. And let me give you an example. This is a story I got from the doctors at UCSD. They told me about a man who had been having seizures for well over a decade, Drugs didn't stop them, and the doctors told him he wasn't a good candidate for surgery. But that was back in 2010. Okay. Flash forward to 2016, this man comes to UCSD, and he sees Dr. Jerry Shi, who directs the epilepsy center there. When I saw him, I said, you know what? We're in a unique situation now where we have some of the newer technologies that were not available in 2010. And we found out where his seizure foci were. And using laser ablation, we actually knocked out that very active seizure focus. And he has subsequently been seizure-free. So today on the show, how technology is changing the way we diagnose and treat epilepsy. I'm Aaron Scott, and you're listening to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app and you're good to go. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Okay, John, before we dive into the tech, can you remind us what epileptic seizures are and, and what causes them? So doctors often describe an epileptic seizure as a sort of electrical storm in the brain. 
The cause is typically a group of brain cells that are just malfunctioning. You have these neurons that lose their normal firing patterns and they start producing these bursts of activity. And all of those out-of-control signals can spread through the brain, which prevents normal communication among brain cells. Okay. So what the brain tries to do is kind of like reboot or reset itself. So it's like a computer that's crashed. And while it's doing that, that is why people may lose muscle control or start shaking or lose awareness or even pass out. And how is epilepsy usually treated? A bunch of ways. For most people, drugs can either greatly reduce or eliminate seizures. Some people also do well with electrical stimulation to the vagus nerve. You know, there's a nerve that runs up your neck and into the brain. Or they may do well with uh, stimulation of specific areas of the brain. There are also special diets like the ketogenic diet that can also work. But for a lot of people, these things don't work well enough. They're, they're still having seizures. And for these people, the most reliable way to treat these seizures is to actually remove the bit of abnormal brain tissue that is mm-hmm. responsible for the problem. In other words, surgery, right? Mm -hmm. And that is where all the lasers and robots and electronics come in. All this technology is making surgery faster and more accurate and much easier on patients. Wow, John. So if the doctors can locate this problem area and remove it, there's this good chance they can get rid of the seizures. And yet our brains are so complex and there's so little we understand about them. How do they find that exact brain area that's responsible for each individual patient's seizure? Well, one way is through this technology, and it's making a huge difference. I I talked to a neurosurgeon at UCSD. His name is Dr. Alexander Kalesi. And here's how he described how technology is letting doctors and scientists study the brain's electrical activity or, you know, electrophysiology Mm -hmm. is what he would call it. And that is, of course, the key to diagnosing and treating epilepsy. If you think about the brain like a musical instrument, the electrophysiology of the brain is the music. And so for so long, we were only looking at a picture of the violin, but for the first time, we're now able to actually listen to the music a little bit better. And so that's going to help us um, understand, um, you know, the symphony that makes us us. Hmm. That is such a beautiful metaphor. Tell us then about the tools that they're using to tune into the symphony. One of them is an array of electrodes that surgeons place under the skull on the surface of the brain. And an array like that allows doctors to monitor the electrical activity in the brain tissue that is underneath the electrodes. So the idea is to say, aha, the problem area is just below this electrode. Then a surgeon knows where to go to either get rid of the brain tissue or place a wire that can deliver electrical stimulation. But the thing is, the accuracy of this approach depends on how many electrodes are in the array. So imagine it's like a computer screen. The more pixels you have, the sharper the image is, right? right? So at UCSD, they've actually created a kind of small-scale factory to make better arrays. And I got a tour of this facility from Shadi Daya, who is a professor of computer and electrical engineering. Here we're looking at the thin film deposition lab uh, where... Everybody's gowned up. Everybody is gowned up. Daya told me that the arrays made here use technology developed for electronics displays, you know, like on a watch or a cell phone. It's um, catching up with how we see the trend in electronics and displays. So why not take these advances, what we've learned in the journey of the display technology, and implement it for the benefit of medicine? 
And so how many electrodes are we talking here, John? And I'm trying to picture this, but how big is the array that's getting implanted into the patient's skull? So imagine something uh, maybe a little bit bigger than a postage stamp, right? You know, years ago, those arrays might have had one or two dozen electrodes. Actually, they started with four, but, Mm -hmm. you know, they got up to, you know, a dozen or two. And Dias says now they are making arrays that have more than a thousand electrodes. And these devices are not only do they have more electrodes, they're also more flexible and they're thinner than a human hair. So they can be placed on the surface of the brain without disturbing anything. This allows us to look at the activity from the surface of the brain with very high resolution. We call it the brain telescope because it allows us to see broad regions of the brain with microscopic uh, resolution. But sometimes just placing electrodes on the surface of the brain isn't enough to figure out precisely where a seizure is coming from. So Doya's team has been working on high-resolution electrodes that can be placed deep into the brain. And that, Aaron, is where the robots come in. (laughs) I was waiting for the arrival of the robots. I'm guessing that we are not talking here about, say, tiny little nanorobots that are cruising around the brain and, like, zapping the problem spots. But what are the robots actually doing? Well, they're helpers. Uh, and and they can be a big help, it turns mm-hmm. out, in the operating room. Because you've got these depth electrodes, the ones that go deep into the brain. And they have to be placed in exactly the right spot. And that's where even a surgeon that has really great hands, you know, they've got limits to how precise they mm-hmm. can be. So at UCSD, the surgeons have been using a robotic system called ROSA. I spoke about it with Dr. Sharona Benheim, who directs the surgical epilepsy program. You know, the Rosa robot has become an incredible tool for specifically this type of surgery because it allows us to fuse our MRI essentially in real time with the three-dimensional space of the patient's head. And, uh, and, and it then allows us to essentially steer in stereotactic place a surgical arm that takes us right to our target. And of course, finding the right target is the key to stopping a patient's seizures. Wow. So I'm trying to picture how this works. Are they drilling like a little hole through the skull And then this tiny surgical arm with the laser is basically kind of going in and navigating the brain to find that exact spot. Exactly. So back in the day, surgeons used a scalpel to remove a brain area that was causing seizures. And that meant that they first had to remove a fairly large section of the skull, you know, so they had room to operate. Mm. Benheim told me that now with a laser, surgery usually requires only making this tiny incision in the scalp and then drilling a tiny hole in the skull. So this is a hole that is smaller than the diameter of, say, a number two pencil, right? Really small. And that means the recovery is a lot quicker. And usually patients can go home just a day after surgery. Wow. So I have to ask, because I like to think we're using all of our brain, um, is that part that's getting removed doing something? Like, is something being lost by removing this part that's triggering the the seizures? Or are our brains actually resilient enough that they can patch over that removed area? Yeah, we don't really have lots of brain tissue that, that is just sitting there doing nothing, right? <laughs> right. So, so the, the trick is to remove as little brain tissue as possible. You know, 
brain tissue is generally doing something. There are definitely some patients who cannot get surgery because their seizures are coming from an area of the brain that is doing something critical. There are other patients who may have to weigh whether getting rid of their seizures is worth the risk of losing some brain function. You know, it could be memory or vision, things like that. Okay. And I mean, this is all still very new. Do they have a sense of what the success rate is like for this advanced surgery? Nationwide, it appears to be higher than 60%. Um, Benheim told me that most of the patients who get laser surgery at UCSD end up with either no seizures or a lot fewer. It's worth noting, though, that so-called open surgery, you know, the old style where they open up the skull, still seems to have a slightly higher success rate, but it also has more risks and you take out more brain tissue and there can be a longer recovery time. Benheim told me one obstacle she has now is that all these advances are so new that many patients aren't even aware of them. So she says people who may have been told years ago that surgery wasn't an option, um, it, they really should visit an epilepsy center again and ask whether surgery might be an option now. Thank you for another deep dive into our gray matter, John. Always a pleasure, Aaron. Before we wrap up, a quick shout out to our Shortwave Plus listeners. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Your support means the world to us. Shortwave Plus helps support our show. So if you're a regular listener and you're not signed up, we'd love for you to join. It means you get to enjoy every episode without sponsor interruptions. Find out more at plus.mpr.org slash shortwave. This episode was produced by Thomas Liu, edited by Gabriel Spitzer, and fact-checked by Anil Oza. The audio engineer was Hannah Glovna. Rebecca Ramirez is our supervising producer. Brendan Crump is our podcast coordinator. Beth Donovan is our senior director of programming. And Anya Grundeman is our senior vice president of programming. I'm Aaron Scott. Thanks for listening to Shortwave from NPR. This message comes from EarthX. This April, the EarthX 2024 Congress of Conferences is the sustainability summit you won't want to miss. Five days of conferences covering the built environment, the natural environment, e-capital, oceans, and conservation. EarthX brings together business executives, nonprofits, and educators to engage in powerful conversations about energy, tech, media, and beyond for one important mission protecting the planet. Please join them and register at earthx.org. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. 
Dune Part 2 is this year's first big movie. It's an epic space opera that delivers plenty of spaceships and big explosions, like any good sci-fi blockbuster should, but it also tackles themes of rebellion, religion, and the use and abuse of political power. That's a lot to chew on, so listen to NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast.